Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. Last things to say, you guys excited? Yes. I'm excited. Are you recording? Oh, yeah. Well, this movie, I don't think no way this movie's bad. No way this movie's <laughs> bad. Not it's going to be good no matter what? Yeah. <laughs> well, it, okay. I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I'm Ben Austin. We're two best friends. One black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is Some of My Best Friends Are. Some of my best friends are. And listen, Khalil, you just heard your nephew, my son, yep. Jonah Romare Austin, <laughs> talking, about, talking about how much he's going to love Wakanda Forever, the Black Panther movie. Yes, Wakanda Forever. Did you dress <laughs> up? Did, did everybody dress up in costumes? Oh, man, we had makeup. We had, no, 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 no. We just, <laughs> we just went. But, but man, you heard how excited he was. And he wasn't wrong. He was going to enjoy that movie no matter what. That's right. Because this is a movie with high stakes. This is a movie with so many representations of black people and black women, indigenous populations and we get to talk to Eve Ewing who is a writer and poet and contributes to one of the characters Riri Williams who makes her debut in Wakanda Forever on the big screen yeah yeah we are we are talking about Marvel comics we're talking about superheroes we're talking about representation we're talking about superpowers of all kinds let's go into the episode Oh, man, this is so exciting. I love that Jonah was so excited and said there can be no wrong in this movie. I'm a big <laughs> fan right. of Ryan Coogler. Of course, I got dressed up to go see Black Panther a few years ago. Oh, man. My whole family went to see Wakanda Forever recently. And now we get to talk to one of the contributors to this Marvel universe, Eve 
Ewing, and she's somebody you actually know and spend a lot of time with. Yeah, well, I know her from Chicago. We're part of the same tribe here on, on in the city. And she is so multi-talented, mm. Eve Ewing. I mean, she is accomplished in this broad array of different fields. And she's so accomplished in so many different things that we could probably start to talk about all the things that she does that we're not going to focus on in <laughs> right. this episode. That, that's right. Yeah, because I know her work as a scholar and sociologist at the University that's of right. Chicago. She's done amazing work on inequality in our public school systems and the school school closings that had a really traumatic effect on the south and west yep. sides of Chicago a few years ago. Yeah, that's not something we're going to talk about. And you know what else we're not going to talk about? She is this amazing, accomplished poet. She's also yep. a children's book author. I mean, she can't, Crazy. she can't not do everything to use a double negative. Yeah. No, no. But even more, even more. She's an activist. She's an organizer. During COVID, uh, when I had not left the house for like four months and I was at my lowest point, mm. uh, she helped organize uh, a, a basically like a food drive for families who were enrolled in public schools but were not getting the free and reduced lunch and breakfast that they needed for nutrition. Wow. And so like it got me out of the house. I bought all these groceries. I brought them over there. There were so many people fed. It made me suddenly feel good again and feel like I was connected to the community. That's her work. Yeah. And I mean, and here we are basically about to talk about superheroes, you know, both on the big screen and in comic books. And in a way, I know she doesn't like to be described this way, but she's certainly super talented. Let's put it that way. Man, she is super talented. I mean, one of the things that's amazing about her to me is that she works in all these different fields. And so now she's even working in the Marvel universe. So mm -hmm. this academic poet, you know, she's also writing comics that, you know, she makes all these different fields her own in a way that feels really unique and empowered. Um, I'm going to quote James Baldwin, uh -oh. you know, because oh, I want to sound smart. Okay. But, okay. but I do always think about this quote when I think about Eve. Mm. And the quote is, the place in which I'll fit will not exist until I make it. Ooh. And she like, somehow look, goes into like, all these like places. It's like my daughter. You yeah, snapping, 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 snapping. So, man, you're such a big fan of comics. I mean, what do you know about Ironheart? So she writes this comic book for Marvel. It's about this young woman, a, a black girl from the south side of Chicago. Her name is Ree Ree Williams. And, you know, she is basically creates an Iron Man suit for herself, <laughs> you know, and, and she's not doesn't have superpowers, but she has an intelligence, which is extraordinary. And she's able to become the superhero through that. Yeah, that character sounds so interesting. And certainly she came to life on the big screen. I have to tell you, though, I mean, I didn't realize how big a deal this was for Eve, and I can't wait to hear her talk more about it. Not too long ago, she wrote in the New York Times an op-ed that I happened to read called Flying While Black. And she talked okay. about how significant doing this kind of representational work in the comic book space is. She said that she'd worked on policing and politics and education. She'd done all the things that we know she is so talented at. But she said nothing had attracted a firestorm of hate and vitriol directed towards her like her work on writing Ironheart. Man, Man that is something. That that's wild. Yeah. So listen, man, let's just get to Eve. Yes. Because uh, let's hear her unpack some of this and talk about, about her work in the superhero realm. Let's do it. All right. Eve Ewing. Oh, my gosh. It's so great to see you. Oh, thanks for having me. 
Yeah, welcome. Welcome to Some of My Best Friends Are. We're really happy to have you here. We get to talk to you, Eve, on the very day that a new issue of a Marvel comic that you write is dropping, right? <laughs> yeah. Is that's issue so two of Photon featuring Monica Rambo. You got it. You got it. And for folks listening, that's Rambo like uh R A M B E A U, not Rambo like <laughs> Sylvester Stallone. But or or like Rambo, the the poet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. because uh, with you they might have thought it was, you know Yeah, Rambo. No, it's not that not that one. Not that one either. So but we we actually wanted to start by talking to you about, you know, this other comic book that you write. Um yes. you know, Ironheart. And, you know, this exciting new character, the superhero in the Marvel Universe, Ironheart's alter ego is Riri Williams. She's this genius from the south side of Chicago. And what? what? Yep, south side. <laughs> and, and, you know, many people have met Riri because they saw her in the Black Panther movie, the new one, Wakanda yeah. Forever. Yeah. yeah, Wakanda Forever, yes. Wakanda Forever. Uh -oh. Exactly. And, and actually... <laughs> uh, when I went, I, I took my kids to see the, that movie Wakanda Forever on, on opening day, and they wanted me to record them, um, you know, actually to hope that I would play it for you. And I'm going to play a little recording of my daughter. We were doing a little debrief in the car ride home, and she was talking about how many smart black women are in this movie. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. I'm so excited. Let's yes. roll the tape. Roll the tape. <laughs> I thought it was it was cool to see, like... Like they didn't need to bring in like somebody like it was another smart black woman. Like they didn't feel like two smart black women. That's too many. Like yeah. that they there could be two of them and they could exist without competing and they could be like friends. Yeah. Like because normally it'd either be like competitive or one of them would have to be white. But there were there was none of that. Wow, great review. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it, for me, what was remarkable about that film is that they're like wealth and riches of of, of incredible black women um, mm -hmm. yeah. in a way that I think is a critical mass that is pretty rarely seen in, in popular culture and popular movies, especially in a movie that is like considered to be what, you know, what we call like a tentpole movie, like a movie for everybody. I remember several years ago, um, the movie uh, Best Man Holiday came out, right? And yes, you know, the yes. Best Man series is like- Khalil and I have just been catching up on those and watching them together with, yeah. our, the, with our wives. Yeah, the show. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, Best Man Holiday, like it's a holiday movie. It's about friends. It's like a middle-aged people movie, whatever, whatever. And I remember USA Today had this had this headline. It was like uh, race-themed movies uh, succeed at the, at the box office. And, you know, Best Man Holiday is not a race-themed movie, right? Man. It's a movie about Black people doing stuff, yeah. like having right. Christmas. And, and, and being bougie um, as hell, know, too. Yeah, and being yeah. bougie. And, right, and I think that the, the but, but that, that lens, the idea that, like, the mere presence of Black people obliterates the possibility of any other kind of thematic exploration. Um, and, you know, to your daughter's point, the fact that, like, one smart black girl is already pushing it and then more than yeah. one is is too much you know in the movie you have you have riri you have shuri you have nakia you have okoye you know mm -hmm. and you have queen ramonda so you have these five black women um that all are leaders and and um amazing people in their own way you know never in 20,000 lifetimes when i was sitting down to to write that comic book did i imagine uh you know sitting in a in a premiere in Hollywood, um, seeing that character come to the screen. And so it's definitely well, been a, a wild journey. Well, that's exactly what we want to talk about. First of all, I have to admit, I mean, this is both embarrassing and also I think um, a compliment to you. I had never read 
a comic book cover to cover until I read the first and second issues of Ironheart. I mean, that, no, that that's is- a, the... That's a huge compliment. Are you kidding me? That's a huge compliment. That, that's a huge and, compliment. But, but he also he also wouldn't buy them. I had to photo, photo you know, I took pictures of them with my phone <laughs> and sent them. <laughs> you had to fax them. You had He's to like, I refuse. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, so I want to know, actually, how did you develop this character? I mean, what- what was the process? How did you make Riri, the inspiration? Talk to us about the backstory. Sure. So, you know, I think that one thing that's important to clarify is that I didn't create the character, right? And so so Brian Michael Bendis, uh, who is also who's a very prolific comics writer, veteran of the industry, um, if you are familiar with the character Miles Morales, oh, yeah. uh, from who, who everybody loves, uh, I know from he, Brian, the Spider Verse, right? Into yes. the Spider Verse, yeah. Um, yes. So, so Brian Michael Bendis also created Miles. Um, so he he created Riri Williams several years ago, and um, you know created her as kind of uh, at a time when Tony Stark was out of commission in the Marvel Universe, um, and. So the story that he created, her kind of backstory was that she was this black girl genius. She was 15. She was from the South Side of Chicago. She went to MIT and she basically reverse engineered uh, the, the equivalent of Tony Stark's Iron Man armor uh, by herself in her dorm room. Right. The idea okay. being that, you know, Tony Stark is, you know, a, a billionaire who's inherited every social privilege that you could imagine. And his father right. was a weapons manufacturer and all this. And um and and what he did with you know years of the best schooling Riri did like on a whim in a dorm um right. and from black from, girl like, magic random. yeah exactly <laughs> and so um but part of a big part of her biography was that she um had lost her father to gun violence when she was a baby that she had lost her stepfather to gun violence when she was young like about 10 or 11 and that in that same drive-by that her best friend was also shot and killed and so that's a very complicated narrative to receive. And I think that, you know, because on the one hand, as a Chicagoan, you know, I and, you know, everybody here, all of us in different ways have been have been touched by gun violence. Gun violence has impacted our lives. And that's real. And then on the other hand, what does it mean for this character to primarily be defined by those losses? So, you know, so when, when I was asked to give my take on the character, I had never written for Marvel before. And, you know, they asked me to, to come in and meet with them. And I, you know, I had this meeting and I went in and it's like, it's kind of like if NASA called me, like, you know, the move, the moment in a movie like Armageddon or something where, you know, mm -hmm. Bruce Willis is like, but I'm just an oil rig <laughs> operator. Right, right. Like, you know, what is, what does the government want with me? Where it's like, you know, I'm just a humble, you know, poet and local nerd. Like I went in, I had this meeting. <laughs> And I, I went in letting them know, like, these are the questions that I have about this character that I think that as a reader, as a fan that I think need to be answered. And some of my questions were, you know, okay, if, if you're a black teen girl from the South side, who's lost all these loved ones to gun violence, what compels you to go out and risk your life every single day? Um, Riri's raised by a single mom. One of my biggest questions was like, what black mom is allowing this to happen? Like, you know, like I was like, there's no way my mom go would let me- Go fly off this you know, roof and try to save folks. Are you joking? Yeah. Like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. She'd be like, you know, I don't care. That might be what your friends are doing. That's not what you're doing, you know? And they so- They need to help um, themselves. 
Yeah, exactly. So, so that was, those are the questions that I asked. And I said to them at that time, you know, if I, my take on this character would be to try to fill out what is her social world? Like, who are the people who, who love her? We fall in love for, with superheroes. They have the longevity that they have, not because of the person with the powers or the person with the costume, but because of the person beneath the suit. Right. Mm. Um, and so, you who know, likes orange soda and hot fries. Exactly. Fries. So those are the type <laughs> of questions I wanted us to know, like, who is Riri? What is she about? Why is she doing this? Who are her friends? What's annoying about her? What's great about her? And and also for her to be defined by a social world that felt real for us to feel like she had a, a cast of characters of, of people who who support her and, and who, you know, kind of make fun of her, keep her head from getting too big, you know, and and I think that that approach of um, going in with the questions that I have as a reader are um, are really that's something that I carry over from the other you know genres in which I've trained. I mean, Khalil definitely as a scholar, this is what we're trained to do, right? Is you you read the literature and you say like, yep. all right, well, what's the gap? Like, what do we not know? Right. And so the that's that's kind of. Yep. What's my intervention? And I think that when you're writing characters that, you know, Riri's a more recent character, but, you know, I've also gotten to write, um, you know, Peter Parker's story and, and Ms. Marvel, and I'm working on, and, and Monica, you know, Monica's a character that's been around for 40 years. Um, mm. I'm working on another story now that I can't say who it is, but it's another legacy character. Come on, come and on, come on. We want to break news here. I can't do it. I can't. I can't. They'll come. They'll come and get me. But you know, <laughs> the question is always like, well, what do we? What do we need to know? Like, what's missing for me as a reader? And and trying to write a character that uh, that feels real to people, that feels relatable to people, that feels like somebody you kind of want to give a hug to sometimes, and you want to shake her other times, uh, who messes up a lot, you know. Can I just say one of the biggest surprises, though, was that you chose the Harvard Kennedy School as the site for this, like, cinematic battle that takes place with Ironheart and the and the villain. And I'm like, what? Yeah, the what? at how your did, job. How... <laughs> at your job. Yeah. Yeah. How did you know, this happen? So at the time when when Brian left off his narrative arc for Riri, the end of his story was basically that the dean of MIT gives her this lab um, and is like, you know, now you have this awesome lab, you could do whatever you want with it. Like, congratulations, go be a hero. And, and that's kind of like a happy ending. Yeah. Now, I, I read that as an academic, right? <laughs> and what we know <laughs> is that if the dean gives you a lab, there's a lot of strings attached. Yeah, I love that stuff. You know, yeah. yes. they're like, it's not a, it's not necessarily an easy happy ending. He's trying to, he's secondly, trying to use her, bring bring people in to raise money to. Yeah, it's a yeah. fundraise, yeah. right? What a, <laughs> you know, what an academic uh, sub <laughs> subplot. Um, you know, the fun and the challenge of it is that you're picking up the reins. It's like that story you play with, with kids, like let's all go around and, you know, add, uh, tell a story together and everybody adds a sentence, right? Everybody says what happens next. Um, and, and so you don't get to just abruptly, you know, comics fans are very big on continuity. Um, and the, the stereotype of the nerd who's going to be like, well, how come an issue four, they had the, you know, this happened, but issue seven of this other thing, this happened, but like, that is a real thing. We try to keep continuity. And so, um, yeah, so you know they say write what you know, Khalil. So I uh, said, that's well, right. I've, I've spent some time around Cambridge, and uh, and so you know, even though I was not an MIT student, I was a I was a Harvard doctoral student. I, I and, was wondering uh, when you were going to admit that. Yeah, I guess I, I figured <laughs> that was probably a relevant detail to mention. Um, well, I, yeah, I, so I, have a, was, I have a question related to that to that Eve. Yeah, and this is a question of sort of asking you to tell us a little bit more about yourself, but also, oh, sure. you know, through Riri, like how much of you is in Riri? 
Yeah, great question. I would say is a robust Venn diagram. Um, we are not the same person. I think that some of the ways in which we are very much the same, I have myself been a black girl growing up in Chicago. I myself was was raised by a single mom. You know, I myself attended a, a you know an elite university uh, in in Cambridge, Massachusetts. You know, and I think that the the genius label is a lot of my work as an ed scholar is um, especially on the book I'm trying to finish right now is challenging and troubling notions of what we think intelligence is um, mm. and ways in which the way uh, notions of intelligence as they're constructed in schools are uh, very restrictive, very um, sometimes very racist, uh, very limiting. And then I was a middle school teacher, right? And so being a teacher means that it's your job to find the amazing things in, in all of your kids and to recognize and celebrate the different ways that quote unquote intelligence can look and can manifest. And my own relationship to that comes as somebody who, you know, was was tracked into high level classes in in elementary school and you know went to a, a selective high school and things like that but always had a kind of complicated awareness of on the one hand receiving these labels of you mm -hmm. know you get to be in this program you get to have this opportunity you get to do this that and the other on the other hand being very cynical at a very young age about the ways that I saw those labels as being socially constructed, uh, if even if I didn't have that. And how, those how did words you have that time. awareness to to feel that, that um, there's something off about all this, and not just to sort of feel this sense of like it was normal and like personal pride, awesome. or just like pride in yourself and not. Yeah, no, I really didn't. I think I think a couple things. Um, one is I have a younger brother, and so I witnessed the way that you know my brother. Um, friends and classmates who were boys or girls who, you know, presented differently or acted differently or, you know, behaved differently. The way that there's like um, performance of a certain form of intelligence is ascribed with moral value and goodness um, yeah. in ways that I was like, well, I'm not a better person than those people. I'm not a more valuable or more worthy person. So those kinds of early schisms of just being like, yo, I think some of this stuff is like kind of fake. So these questions of deservingness, of goodness, all that stuff was very, um, it made me very cynical about the labels like gifted and talented um, very early. And so, you know, it's fine. Like it's fiction, it's comics. We can call people geniuses. Everything doesn't have to be a sociological thesis with me. <laughs> it kind of does, but, but I at least try to conceal it. And, but, you know, but at the very least, like, that doesn't solve her problems, right? And so so how is she coping with the losses that she's experienced in her life? What are the ways in which she still has to grow as a, as a young person, as a friend, right? As a daughter. Um, and that's the kind of, that's the story that I, that I wanted to tell. We're going to talk some more to Eve about superheroes and representation after we come back from the break. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. 
whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan Chase Bank NA member FDIC. Copyright 2024, JP Morgan Chase and Company. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., that's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Hey, we are back on some of my best friends are... 
with Eve dot, L. Dot, dot. Ewing. <laughs> <laughs> you brought up uh, Miles Morales and in in Into the Spider-Verse earlier. And it is my son, Jonah's by far most favorite, not even favorite movie comic. It's his favorite thing. And, yes. you know, I ask him why. And, uh, you know, even before this conversation, I asked him again. And I could almost verbatim tell you what he said. He said, uh, Miles is Afro-Latino. I'm African-American. And we could put an asterisk there and, you know, a footnote for later, you know, when he says that. Um, and he says, you know, and both of us are these kids who went into these sort of like high powered nerdy schools and are trying to navigate them. Mm-hmm, He's like, mm-hmm. and then this is a quote. He said, we have the same origin story. Oh, really? <laughs> Which is a great way of also saying like, you know, we all, one of the reasons yes. I think we love seeing superheroes is because we all dream of that, that this thing will emerge in us that will also differentiate yes. us. Um, oh, yes, and, for sure. And, you know, that, it's a, I love that. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, you know, maybe, you know, something I want to ask you, like, you know, you're, you're so knowledgeable about all this. And, uh, and Khalil isn't, as he said, he has never even studied any of this. <laughs> oh, well, now, wait a minute. And, I, and, I have other kinds of knowledge. And, and I want to ask you about this moment, like, you know, even Marvel reaching out to you, like, what's, what do you think is different about this moment right now, as far as representation, that's different than previous ones when there were, you know, there were black people in comics before there's obviously been women right. around, like, right. what's different right now? Yeah, I really appreciate that question. I think that really something that has been top of mind for me recently is um, looking back to Ta-Nehisi Coates' run on Black Panther um, mm. in 2016. Actually, even though it gets a lot less attention, mainstream media attention, I think in some ways it's more important or more stunning um, that he then had a run on Captain America. And, you know, what does it mean for the United States? Uh, one of its leading black public intellectuals uh, who is known for what at the time for many people were very incendiary arguments about things like reparations and America as a kleptocracy. Uh, you know, person who has said America is a kleptocracy to be the person who's like, I'm now going to write the story of Captain America. Right. Um, yes. And I think that that was a really important historic moment that opened up a lot of space for writers of color who perhaps did not have uh, the kind of coming up through the ranks um, pathway into comics because it is not a medium that has felt welcoming to people and who have shown their mettle in other arenas and other genres to be able to, to come in to writing, um, you know, folks like Saladin Ahmed, who, who, you know, been a fiction writer and uh, Greg Pak, who is a, a, an amazing comics writer now, but started out as a, as a filmmaker, uh, you know, Roxanne Gay, who was certainly the, the most high profile black woman to kind of, you know, crossover. Um, and I think that took some imagination on the on the part of, of editors to say like, well, you know, maybe this person who's good at this thing could be good at this other thing. So I'm starting to be in a position now where I'm trying to be imaginative about what the next step is. And as a poet, um, you know, I, that's my first published book is a book of poetry. And, and in many ways, I came of age as a writer, as a poet my milieu and my social learning space is very much cultivated by poetry. And that has always been shaped by um, the legacy of Gwendolyn Brooks. And what, what Gwendolyn Brooks teaches us is that it's not enough for you to just be, you know, to sit in your little like uh, writing 
hobbit hole and like write the the great American poem, but that actually, you know, for Gwendolyn Brooks, being a poet meant sponsoring young people's poetry contests, being a poet meant, uh, you know, being in regular correspondence with people who were inspired, you know, by her being a poet meant teaching free workshops. And so my work as a poet has always been uh, very much inflected with cultural organizing. And I'm trying to think now about what my role is in terms of um, opening up the space for other people. And, you know, I just did a, a signing, comic book signing this past weekend um, at on the South Side on 53rd Street. We were scheduled for two hours. I went to almost three and we had to cut the line off. Um, That's awesome. And it, it was amazing. But what, what I love about those signings is how many little black girls, girls in general, kids in general, kids of color in general, like, uh, you know, all these different identities of young people. They come to get these signings. Sometimes they take a picture with me. And I love, I just want it to be completely mundane for them. I'm the fifth black woman ever to write Marvel comics. Um, and, you know, all five of us are like, the, the first five are all like in, you know, a stone's throw of each other in terms of timing, right? It's not like the first one was in like 1970 you know, or something. Oh, man. And so I, I want that. them to feel like this is as mundane yeah, and possible yeah. and doable and easy and seeable a path as like, you know, being a dentist or something. Can I share with you uh, something that uh, connects totally with what you're describing? So I don't know if you, I, I can't imagine you haven't had this experience yet, but um, when I started at the Schomburg back in 2011, uh, one of the people who worked for me was the director of education, a woman named Deirdre Holman. And, and Deirdre came up with this brilliant idea. She said, look, I know this guy named Jerry Kraft, who is an illustrator, and this guy, Jonathan Gales, who is a scholar of, of Black representation in comic books. And they've come to me and they say, hey, Schomburg should be host to a yeah. Black comic con. And I'm like, what a brilliant idea. And it just so happens that this January, starting the end of this week, is the 10th uh, anniversary of the Schomburg's Black Comic Con. Have, have you ever, did you ever participate in it? Oh my God, Khalil, yeah. So so I, that's very emotional for me because the first time I went was as a fan and I went to the first Black Comics Fest. Of uh, being at the Schomburg Center, yeah. Yeah, being at the center, yeah. And, and yeah, and I remember going to that and I, there was a there was a panel about black women in comics mm -hmm. and i just was sitting there with my jaw just on the floor and that panel was so important to me because you know prior to that i had been to you know an independent i had just gone to another independent comics festival a few months prior to that and i remember that one being you know all white people with mm -hmm. a few a few people of color kind of scattered throughout at that particular festival. And then I went to the the Schomburg festival and it's like all black dudes. That's right? right. And so, you know, it's like the panel, the the black women in comics panel is kind of the only, you know, it's like whoever's interested is going to show up for that. I and actually remember that panel. Go ahead, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, I mean it was it was it was a really important moment for me and uh and then I went and was on a panel um, in January, 2020. And it was one of the last things I did before COVID yeah, for shut the, down. And, and I remember Vita Ayala, who's an amazing, uh, non-binary Afro-Latine, uh, comics writer was also on the panel and, and it was really powerful. And there's a, today 
so there's in the Schomburg, there's a there's a, a exhibition about black comics. And there's a picture of me on that panel. And oh, a I haven't quote seen from the me. show. I love it. Yes. And there's yes. a quote from me on the wall, uh, yes. which this morning, as I was walking my dog, a friend of mine was like, yo, I'm at the Schomburg. They got you on the wall. You know, and <laughs> you have it's arrived. Just one of those, I've arrived. And and it's just it's really special. And I, but I think like continuing to build those spaces is really important because, and one of the things that that festival does is, is bring in lots and lots of young people, you know, I don't know if y'all remember this, but like, for me, my parents' generation, you know, they talk about, um, you know, when a black person we came might, on, we might be your parents' generation. So oh, be careful. Nah, not quite, not quite. <laughs> nice try though. Nice try. Um, you know, my parents' generation always talks about uh, when a black person came on, like the new, like a black news anchor came on every, or a black person first, came on yeah. TV, yeah. everybody would run in the room, right? Because it was like a huge deal. Yeah. And then by the time, you know, I was a kid, it's like, yeah, Robin Robinson's on TV every night. Like it's, I'm happy for her, but like, this is a mundane, this is not a, nothing to write home about. So like, what I want is for, you know, kids who grow up and who get to read these comics that I'm writing or meet me at a signing, I want them to be like equally unimpressed, you know, and I want them to be focused on like, uh, all right, well, how many, how, where's the queer representation? Where's the disabled representation? Where's the undocumented representation? Black characters have been in comics for a minute. That's not enough. Right. And so I want, you know, I want the, the, the trans Muslim disabled author writing the trans Muslim disabled heroes, you know, um, and not simply because we always have to have this like one-to-one very limited uh, reductive notion of what representation means, but because the more people we have at the table, the more we can actually do what comics and what Marvel comics in particular has always promised and supposedly said it was going to do, which is show you the world outside your window. Mm. You know, Um, I love that. Yes. And so, yeah, I just think everybody, everybody should, everybody jump in the pool. That's how I feel. So speaking of everyone jumping in the pool, we have seen an explosion of diversity. And you've already talked about Miss Marvel. We talked about the new black Captain America, but there's been tremendous backlash. Um, And, you know, you've talked about precisely how getting into comic books unleashed some of the worst hatred that you've experienced personally. But we also know that the black girl who's going to play Ariel in the upcoming Little Mermaid has been subject to all this total insanity and racism. Uh, There's a quote from the, the Washington Post that the trailer sparked anger and dismay among fans who felt that Ariel was written to be a white character. And these critics saw it. Bailey's casting was nothing more than wokeness gone awry. I mean, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. talk to us a little bit about the, the the relationship of this work and what we're seeing happen with people who are pushing back. Yeah, you know, I think that in a way, there is actually an interesting analog. So, so you know, I'm teaching this quarter and... Um, prepping to, to lecture tomorrow about critical race theory. And I think that, you know, for the type of scholarly work that, that we do, there's an interesting analog here in terms of how you strike the balance between, I think, a number of sometimes competing needs that are all urgent. So one of them is recognizing the viciousness of the backlash but not only responding to it in a kind of sensationalized way, which I think is what a lot of mainstream media does, and instead 
taking a deeper look at what is beneath it, right? And that's where we dig into our, our critical race theory to help us understand, you know, when somebody gets really mad about a fictional character like Ariel, you know, being portrayed by Halle Bailey, I think about when I first started writing Ironheart, the, the joke I always made was like, you know, at the time I was using Twitter a lot and I was using Twitter a lot to critique police and prisons and the mayor at the time and all these like, you know, pretty weighty political topics. And I always thought like, so I can go on Twitter every day and say abolish the police, but, uh, and that's all fine. Right. Uh, but if I say, if I'm writing a fictional story about a black girl who flies around and shoots laser beams out of her hands, that that's like a problem. Like, what is that about? You know? And it's about I think, kids. It's about young people, right? That's I mean, right. That, at the end of that's, the day. That's yeah. part of it. That's part of it. Yeah. And it, and I think that, I think for me, one of the challenges with the comic stuff and the the world of sci-fi and Star Wars and speculative fiction and all this being grounds for these kinds of reactionary takes is that it's really easy for people who love you, who are outside of these industries to say well-meaning but ultimately unhelpful things like, well, that's just a bunch of losers in a basement. They suck. They couldn't even blah, blah, blah. And that stuff all might be true, but like they're just losers in a basement until um, they show up with a gun, right? And it takes a toll. It's taxing, right? That this this yeah. kind of language and this kind of experience is taxing. So I think one of the things that's really important for us to do is to step up and support and defend and celebrate the folks who, um, you know, have received these kinds of vicious attacks that these major media companies have had a really mixed bag in defending, defending people um, and having their back. But I think the third thing is like, you know, man, I got to tell these stories. Like I got to write these books. I really strike a balance between trying to be aware and be realistic and be safe about the folks that are out there that do not support this type of work. But it is very important that I give them a mere infinitesimal fraction of the attention that I give writing good stories, you know, for, for Ben's kids to be like this, this made me feel seen. This is my origin story. And I think that one thing that my friends and I in these industries talk to each other about all the time and is that the internet is a vile place. And when I go to cons, when I do signings, when I do these events, the kid who comes up to me and hands me their like kind of crumply comic book, you know, standing there in their Black Panther costume or their Ms. Marvel costume and, you know, asks if they can sit on the table and take a picture with me. It is so important that that person takes up tens, you know, manifold more, more um, time in your head, yes. time in my head. And mm -hmm. because the moment I stop writing for them and start writing for those other people, what am I actually doing with the limited days I have on this planet? It's just a waste. And the other thing is that, you know, I'm going to quote something that Ta-Nehisi said earlier to me many years ago when, when I said earlier that, like, I used to ask, like, well, why is this the thing that pisses people off so much? And he said, well, it's because they're right. They're right that this actually is it threatening. Matters. It matters, yes. right? Like it yeah. actually really does matter. Comics as a medium were invented in the United States, right? Certainly a pastiche of many things that had existed before, but invented in the United States context by and large by Eastern European Jewish immigrants and children of immigrants, right? Living in New York City. This history has always been about, you know, subjugated people trying to tell these outlandish stories about what could be possible. And that is scary. That is countercultural. And I, Yep. I, I believe it remains countercultural, even as these movies, you know, take over the global box office and this and that. That's kind of the kernel that I'm that I'm trying to hang on to. Well, we love amazing, that. Amazing. Amazing. 
We are going to take one more break. We're talking with Eve Ewing. We're talking about comics and superheroes and really everything else that this this genre, this form tells about us and I guess you could say our alter egos. We'll be right back after the break. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first-ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards i'll save you a seat this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with purdue global when you come back with a purdue global degree you create opportunity for yourself your family and your future it's a degree you can be proud of a degree that employers will trust and respect Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. 
Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. We are back on Some of My Best Friends Are with the amazing Eve Ewing. Holy cow. Eve, there's something that's been coming up throughout this conversation. And actually, as I think about all of your work, there's this incredible focus on young people. And even even the moment that I played the clip of my daughter or when I mentioned my son, you lit up in a way which is like almost like nothing else. And I remember once we, we met in a coffee shop and my son was there and the way you talked to him about his Beyblades, like, like which <laughs> yes. are these toys he had, you are so connected to young people and it's so much a part of everything you do. I mean, it, it's kind of wild. Yeah, I mean, thank you for seeing that. You know, as a writer... I believe that young people are very important in making literary canons. And I believe that oftentimes people who see themselves as serious writers don't take young readers seriously. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I don't know why other people don't take young people seriously, to be honest with you. Um, I was I was joking with a friend of mine, a friend Kava Akbar, who's a, a poet um, and also a huge Simpsons fan. And he sent me this meme yesterday of um, Principal Skinner uh, on The Simpsons. And and in this meme, he's like, am I out of touch? No, it is the children. <laughs> it's the children who are wrong, you know? And it's such a funny joke, but it's like, I don't know about y'all, but when I was a kid, I looked around at adults all the time and I was so aware of this obvious logical fallacy, which was like, you were like me once, right? Mm-hmm. You were like me once, which is something you can't really say about most social identities, but it's like everybody was a kid. And, and that I just used to stand around looking at adults, just pondering that fact. Like every single one of you was my age. Yeah, we're all every age we were before. Right, right. Like Sandra Cisneros teaches us, right? When you're 11, you're also 10 and 9 and 8 and 7, right? And so, so I didn't understand then why it was that adults seem to have so little regard for the inner life of kids. And I, I remember feeling that way as a kid and, and taking myself so seriously. I took myself so seriously as a reader and as a thinker and had a lot of confidence in myself that I, that the things that I had to say and the things that people around me felt and thought were important. And I didn't understand why adults didn't feel that way. And so I think I kind of made a pact with myself that I just never, I just never wanted to be that person. And it doesn't mean that I haven't failed at times. I mean, certainly there are things that I did as a CPS teacher that I look back at, you know, moments of Chicago being- Chicago Public Schools. Uh, Chicago Public Schools, uh, not, not uh, Child Protective Services. <laughs> Chicago Public Schools, a teacher, um, and ways in which as a teacher, you get co-opted into certain ways yeah, of, yeah. of treating kids or acting, you know? So, so it's not like I've always been perfect or that I've never messed up, but I just, I just really tried to keep that promise to myself. Um, and then I think on a more utilitarian level as a writer, I think that if you look around like young people reading in school, for many folks, that is the most robust and consistent reading life that they'll ever have. 
Um, mm -hmm. Right. Like the frequency with which you read, having time in the day earmarked to read and to talk to other people about what you're reading. Right. Like most people don't have that past high school. You you come of age, you you begin to be the person that you are in your engagement with literature, I believe, when when you're young. And, you know, many of us, I don't know about y'all, but I feel like I'm always chasing that, like, under the covers feeling, you know, like the feeling mm. you have when you're a kid reading a really great book. And, you know, I remember uh, when I was in seventh grade, my my aunt's boyfriend gave me a dog-eared copy of Flowers for Algernon. Okay. Um, and he was like, I think you'll really like this. And I remember reading it on this, like, 16-hour road trip. And I finished it, and <laughs> I just was just weeping alone oh in the God. back of the car and didn't mm. couldn't even say anything to anybody you know and and i'm just i'm always chasing that like i'm always trying to reclaim that as a person who reads and writes for a living now and so i just think that is when we become in many ways who we are um, and that's not everybody people have many different yeah. journeys but i think that's some true people of a aren't bookish kids you know and that's yeah and that's fine too else, and you know but even for those even for those kids i think i think many people who aren't bookish kids there's something about storytelling that probably engaged you as a young person, right? Yeah. And that could yep. be like a person in your family that told really great stories. That could be a movie you really loved and watched over and over and over and over and over. You know, you talk about Spider-Verse. Um, you know, a friend of mine just sent me a, a video of her son. He's two years old. And it's him reciting one of the opening monologues from uh, from Into the Spider-Verse, yeah. you know, from memory. He's like, okay, let's try this one last time. Yeah. My yeah. name is Peter Parker. You know, uh, he's two, right? Uh, that's, his, that's one of his earliest texts that he's making a relationship with. So I just think, um, yeah, I just think as a writer, I try to, everything that I've written so far, and I can't make this promise into the future, but everything I've written so far, I've tried to imagine that a young person of some age could read and enjoy. I feel very affirmed by what you said, Ben, because it, I, I just want to be a person who takes young people seriously. And I have to I'd be really remiss and probably in big trouble in case she ever hears this if I didn't give a shout out to my mom. Um, because oh. when I was a kid, my mom always said um, children are to be seen and listened to. Mm. Um, oh, that's great. She said that all the time. <laughs> yeah. 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 And and then she would always be like, you know, I would get in arguments with mom and she'd be like, it's so annoying how I raised you to express your opinion. Yeah. Because I really don't want to have this argument with you right now, but like, but I, but it's my own fault. Like I'm being punished for encouraging you to, to speak up all the time. Yeah, I I just want to say this has been uh, really wonderful. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. Thank uh, you. That's a that's a black we, proverb. <laughs> keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> we are we are grateful for your contributions. I, I have to say I wore this t-shirt. Uh, just for you uh, today. Oh, so, Black Scholars Matter. Thank you. I appreciate that's that. That's right. But you are way more than that. And um, just excited to see what is in the future for you. And I'm going to keep reading Ironheart. You can Thank count on you. it. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. And Khalil, I meant it when I said, you know, for me, when people say this is the first comic book I've ever read, that's a huge compliment because I, I mm. do want this to feel like a welcoming space that hasn't always been welcoming to lots of people. So so that means a lot to me. And I appreciate you giving it a shot. Awesome. Right thanks for, Thank thanks you, for joining us today. Thanks so much. Thanks, Eve. Ben. Thanks, Khalil. So, Khalil, uh -huh. what's the superpower that you would want? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, put me on the spot. Come um, on. I kind of think, I don't know, this seems so lame, but reading people's minds. Mm. 
<laughs> you don't already have that power? You I'm, seem so discerning. I'm pretty good at it, but man, it'd be it'd be wonderful to know okay. I'm right. <laughs> huh, interesting. Interesting. You're a snoop. You're a snoop. So I think teleportation would be cool, you know, just to get somewhere really fast. But then listening to Eve talk about having a long trip and reading an entire book, I kind of like that. I've been thinking after speaking with Eve about what her superpower is. Mm. And I know I know she's like, I'm just an ordinary, you know, citizen doing my job kind of stuff. You know, I don't <laughs> want the distance between me and everybody else right. to be that great. Right. But but talking with her, man, this this combination of her intellect mm -hmm. and her analysis mm -hmm. and just how smart she is, and also how at the same time how empathetic she is how caring yes and those two things she has the analysis of the caring and the, and the empathy mm -hmm. and it's it's part of her intelligence and vice versa mm -hmm. and that is really rare right. that's a superpower yeah right yeah i i think that's right and i think that's what makes her appetite and curiosity for trying to make sense of really complicated things and here's the other side of it just to explicate what you're saying and then do it for for young people. Like to yeah. say, I want young people to see how this works in a way that adults sometimes figure it out, um, but they shouldn't have to wait. They have every yeah. right to understand this stuff as much as anybody and to be part of the story. That's, that is a rare gift that she has. And, and, and the thing she said about, about when she was assigned to to add to Riri Williams' story, Ironhout's story, mm. of asking that question like, who are her people? Right. Uh, who cares about her? Who loves her? Yeah. And, and, and thinking about that, that wider world, um, that's connected with what you just said. It's like, it's both just being like a, a good writer and thinker, but it is thinking about this larger community, you know, especially for this, this young, this black girl, like who does she need in her world to, to bolster her? That's to, right. to keep her going. And it also cuts against tr traditions in the canon of Western literature, which is generally about the individual protagonist, uh, who by dint of their superpowers can do everything on their own. Yeah. And what she's saying is actually we need each other. And in a yeah. way, that's the story of Wakanda. That's the story of Black <laughs> Panther as a series. I mean, that's kind of the intervention that's happening in this Marvel universe. And that that co that yeah. scary collectivism that folks on the right are basically saying all this race stuff and these racial representations are going to be the ruin of us and guess what they're right we're coming mm -hmm. <laughs> i'm glad you're getting into comics and you're getting into superheroes because you're seeing that you're seeing that it is just like the real world that it's a way to to make sense of it and the way to to expand our understanding and our imagination and guess what there's this whole field of Afrofuturism that uses comics as a way to imagine a future that's different than the present. That's and right. That makes that's me right. feel better because sometimes it's yeah. all this stuff we talk about can be a little depressing. So I'm going to read more comic Man. books in 2023. All right. Well, I love you. Love you too. Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. It's produced by John Asante and Lucy Sullivan. Our editor is Sarah Nix. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wong. And our managing producer is Constanza Gallardo. At Pushkin, thanks to Letal Molad, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Greta Cohn, 
and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan, the brilliant Avery R. Young, from his album Tubman. You definitely want to check out his music at his website, averyryoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. And listen, even if you don't like it, give it a five-star rating and a review. And please tell all of your best friends about it. Thank you. Yo, earlier in the episode when you said Wakanda, what accent was that? <laughs> what are you talking about? That's Chad Bozeman. I'm just, I'm just keeping, I'm keeping the accent alive. I don't know. All right, so I found out the secret that uh, that Eve couldn't tell us about what Marvel comics she's writing. She's actually writing the new Black Panther comic. Holy smokes! Really, man, it's, it's going to be amazing. Yes, it is. I can't wait. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. 